This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case i got bored welcome to literary treks episode number 285 this is your official star trek books and comics podcast here on the trek fm network and i am bruce gibson thank you so much for joining us and we also of course have dan gunther here dan how's it going hey not too bad uh as always excited to talk about star trek novels and this one in particular that we'll be doing in the feature with a special guest. Yes, this is the 40th anniversary of Star Trek The Motion Picture, and we're actually going to read the novelization, which I think is a first. We've never done a novelization on the show, if I recall. I don't think that we have, no. Now now I'm wondering, has the show done the Star Trek Into Darkness novelization? Because that would have been during its I don't run. recall it. If it, I don't think it, I don't know. I, I, don't I, I was going to go back and look, but I don't think so. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, if we haven't, it's been a long, if we have, it's been a long time. And we should say, you know, one of the main reasons we're doing this novelization in particular, like you said, it's the 40th anniversary, but Pocket Books has also reprinted and re-released the novelization uh, in a shiny new glossy black covered trade paperback which uh i was really happy to add to my collection even though i have the uh i have a 1979 printing of the uh of the novelization but you know this new edition which sadly there's nothing really new in it it's just a a reprint of the original novelization but it's still a really cool thing to have but it's in that bigger trade paperback size that they've been mm-hmm. doing new novels in. So it's a bigger version than the paperbacks that originally came out. It does say on the top that's a 40th anniversary edition or printing or whatever. So that's yeah. really, yeah, that's the only difference on it. And speaking of the motion picture, we are getting a new book related to the motion picture. And it's called Star Trek The Motion Picture Inside the Art and Visual Effects. And it was just recently announced. I saw it on from Trek Corps on October 2nd, and they said that uh, it's a new book exploring the creative efforts behind the first Star Trek film, and it's coming out May 2020. And the authors are Jeff Bond and Gene Kozicki. So I'm definitely going to buy this. I think it looks like it's probably going to be like a 
coffee table book. Yeah, this one is one I'm really excited to add to my collection as well. Say what you will about Star Trek The Motion Picture. I love it, but I know it has its detractors out there. But one thing you can't fault it for is the art and the visual effects. So, you know, this is something that I think is going to be a really great companion piece to that film. And I'm, like you, definitely going to add it to my collection. Yes. And then, obviously, as we mentioned, we're going to be talking about the novelization in the feature. And yes, that special guest is Larry Nemechek, Dr. Trek. There you go. (laughs) We can't exactly have the author on, but definitely the next best thing. Absolutely, yes. Well, let's look at the listener feedback for episode number 283 of Literary Treks, where we discuss the novel Vendetta. This is a TNG novel and one of my favorites, if not my favorite, of the TNG novels. And Christopher Backus says, I remember liking that book. I haven't read it in decades. And I replied to him and I said, it had been a long time since I read it too. Yeah, Um I read it much more recently, but it was still a lot of fun to uh, get back to it after a few years, for sure. Well, Oz Trekkie says, this is a Peter David Borg book done right. I didn't reread this one before listening to the podcast and haven't read it in ages, but I still remember every chapter, every plot point, as I have reread this one so many times in the past. The humor and interweaving of stories shown on screen blended into this great story make this one of my all-time favorite TNG novels. This is a story where Peter David's humor fits to a T. Everyone is tilting at windmills in this novel, and apart from defeating the Borg, important to do, everyone fails in their personal quest. Picard and Guinan can't save Delcara, Delcara doesn't reach the Borg, and Geordi can't save Rhiannon. It's an unusual Trek novel where the main characters aren't ultimately successful in their endeavors. I remember this made the novel stand out for me when I first read it. There are so many good memories that I have about this novel. I rate this 5 out of 5 beams of pure anti-proton energy coming at you. Awesome. And then Grant Davis says, one of the first Trek books I read. Also one of my favorites. Looking forward to listening. Yeah, Grant, it's one of my favorites, obviously, too. (laughs) Definitely me, too. Justin Ozer comments, Vendetta is a novel that I really enjoyed, and I think my feelings are mirrored by what Dan had to say. I had a few minor issues, but really enjoyed it overall. Thank you for always having a great discussion. Well, thank you, Justin, for always listening and uh, for mirroring my thoughts. That shows you to be a person of great taste and sophistication. Oh, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And Nicholas Isles says, great read explanation point and we have a comment from d baish or d baish i'm sorry if i'm uh mispronouncing your name there uh they say this is one of the few novels i've reread devoured it within an afternoon after buying it on release day years later it entered the novel rotation when i commuted into the city for work that original copy is long gone now but i'll be taking yet another look via ebook thanks to this podcast And Kimberly Lawler says, the giant novels. Wow, that takes me back, Bruce Gibson. I guess the numbered novels were slimmer, but I'm glad we get longer novels as a matter of course now. I'm going to dissent from the consensus and say that I didn't love this novel. I can live with alternate and superseded timelines like the Shatnerverse or different versions of the Stargazer crew and reunion versus the autobiography of Picard. But this one never sat right with me. The characterization 
felt a little off and the disturbing elements were even more disturbing than usual. I Borg as an episode is so much better in the way that Jordy and Beverly work together to save Hugh instead of being somewhat at odds and the way Picard and Guyan reacted to him, which was powerful. This novel was memorable for sure, but I never wanted to reread it the way I did with the other Peter David ones. Dan Gunther Q squared is also my all time favorite TNG novel. And another commenter with, Great taste and sophistication. Thank you, Kimberly. (laughs) Oh, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Jen Foley says, I usually tune out the beginning of the podcast when you talk about comics since I don't read them. However, I heard bright eyes and suddenly the words turn around popped into my head. (laughs) (laughs) This was definitely a better novel than before Dishonor. It did have some issues, as you mentioned. Captain Corsmo ordering his crew to fire on the Enterprise stands out as one part that didn't make much sense to me. Jordy's obsession with the Borg drone was a little weird, too. Overall, however, it was a good story. I always love stories where Guinan gets a role and the backstory with her and Delcara was interesting. Delcara was an interesting character in her own right, as were the voices, if they can be considered a character. I also applaud Peter David for creating a female Borg. Since the Borg assimilated entire societies, it would have made no sense if there weren't any females. And Patrick Harlan says, this is one I've always enjoyed. I remember buying it at the now closed downtown Minneapolis Barnes & Noble. And then I walked a few blocks down to the Nicolette Mall to the multi-level McDonald's, got a few quarter pounders with cheese and settled in at one of the upper level tables to read it. Oh my gosh, Patrick, that's like my dream because I'm... (laughs) I, you know, people like all the time say to me like, "Ugh, McDonald's. But yeah, I love quarter pounders with cheese and reading Star Trek at a Barnes and Noble or, or in the upper level of McDonald's would be great for me, too. That sounds <laughs> terrific. Definitely. Well, Christopher Baca says, found my original signed novel and posted a photo of his copy of Vendetta signed best Peter David. So that's really cool. Um, that's something I wish I had in my collection. So hang on to that. That's a really nice piece of memorabilia. Yes. And I love that as an idea because the next time I see Peter David at Dragon Con, I'm going to bring my Vendetta novel for him to sign. I never thought to do that. Yeah. And I'll, I'll bring my little Kobo e-reader and bring it up and then have him sign the screen. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> that's probably not a good idea. <laughs> no, probably. But you know what is a good idea? Going into the feature. I agree completely. I'll meet you there. I'm very excited to talk about the novelization to Star Trek The Motion Picture, and of course, doing it with Dan, but also with Larry Nemechek, Dr. Trek, because you know, Larry, you always have some really interesting little nuggets of information. You always find new stuff, too, in the Trek files. So I don't know if you're going to have anything new for this, but I'm really excited to talk to you about this. No. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, I will just discuss this with Dan. (laughs) Larry will just be here, just kind of hanging out while we talk, I guess. That sounds good. Oh, I'm sorry. I just thought I'd go packlet on you for a second there. Okay. No, I'll... uh, Yeah. it's it's, It's really amazing to me to see the motion picture, like, kind of come out. It's like somebody went off and dug it out of the bottom of the museum and pulled it out. Oh, you know blow off the dust and right. wait, okay everybody i know you all love to make fun of this 90 percent of the time but it is the 40th anniversary so show some respect and let's all get and look at it really again and oh 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 you know it's it's fun to watch people pull it out and 
actually treat it with some respect. So, yeah, and I, I'm right there with you because I, I've mentioned on the show before. I actually love the motion picture, and it's just it's one of those things that like really brought me into Star Trek. It my mom rented the VHS copy and brought it home, and I think like I saw the Klingon ships going past the screen, pa- past the camera, and I was like, oh, "What is this?" And I was just in love. I, so I, yeah, the motion picture, oh, it's right up there for me. The uh, the well, I'll tell you in a minute, but the Klingon ships is one of like my most visit, vivid memories of seeing it in the theater the first time, but. Oh, anyway. I, and I still haven't seen it in the theater. I man, I wish they they. Oh, if wow. only someone would show it in here. theaters on a mass scale for the anniversary. If only. Yeah, if only they did that where I live here in Canada. That's just That'd a great. Oh, that's just man. a phantom dream of mine, I guess. So. Because <laughs> you really do need to see on the big screen. I I have a uh, my own little like movie theater room with a projector, and I watched it the other week, and I just realized watching it on the big screen how much better it plays. I mean, I love the motion picture too, but when you see it on the big screen because of the whole, you know, the clouds and, you know, it's this big environment they're going into. And of course it's slow, but it's like on the big screen, it really feels like you're traveling through it with them. It really works. The whole cinematic-y thing. The whole cinematic-y (laughs) thing. And I did see it originally in the theaters when it came out in 79. I went with my family. This time, I mean, I wasn't a big Star Trek fan. I mean, I knew Star Trek and all that, but I wasn't like a huge fan. But I remember seeing it. I was excited about seeing it. And I left a little bit confused. And I knew my dad used to watch the series on TV. And I said, turned to him, I said, I'm a little confused. I said, so the bad guy was a cloud? And he's like, uh... Yeah, I'm confused too. <laughs> and of course, now I'm, I watch them like, why was I confused? This totally well, makes well, sense. Well, now after 47,000, you know, Star Trek movies and 47,000 different aliens, it's cool to go, the villain was a cloud. You know, I mean, it's like it's different because you're I, not, it's not the 57th reincarnation of a, of a con type villain. I mean, you know, it's yeah, like right. racing for that bar, and, and it, for so. Well, anyway, we 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 should get into that. But had I watched had I watched the animated series all the way through at that time, which I probably saw a couple episodes, I probably would have accepted the cloud more because I in my rewatch of the animated series, I realized how many clouds that they're <laughs> dealing with. In the clouds are cheaper series. than planets. It's like. <laughs> It's like, <laughs> to it's like Voyagers should be called the one in the caves because they, you know, <laughs> use caves yeah. over and over and over again. That's true. So, Larry, I know you saw it in the theater when it originally came yeah. out. But now you were telling us on the other side of the page, you like how we say that? Uh, the other I see side that, of the page? yeah. Okay. Yeah. You think you may have read this novelization before you saw the movie. May have. Well, I was really trying to remember. I remember... I remember reading The Wrath of Khan's novelization before seeing it because I actually – I don't think I've ever said this out loud. I actually teared up when Kirk said his was the most human. And I was like – I teared up and then I was in shock. It's like, my God, I'm tearing up over reading the damn book before I even see the movie? That's ridiculous. Wow. But Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert, everybody. Ooh. Um, <laughs> but I want to say that I did because I – you know, we can get into this, but I, the whole thing about Lori Siani – okay, the other thing is I'm reading up on notes wherever I can, and Siani was a typo, and it should have been Siana, and it was I – because my whole – you know, my memory train is it's Lori Siani at Vice Admiral Lori Siani, his wife and his marriage contract, which is one of the amazing things in the novel that's not on anywhere yes. on the screen that fleshes it out. But I want to say that as the transporter accident scene unfurls, I was sitting in the theater going, 
Wow, they don't say that that's Lori Siani at all. Hmm. So anyway, I know the books that's were on right, sale. Yeah. And it's a total, she's just an extra. You know, Sonak and some woman over there. You know, you don't know that she's a, who she is or that she's an admiral or much less uh, this whole background that he makes up for the novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah, after I yeah. read it, the, I, I remember watching, now, you know, rewatching the movie after reading this novelization again. And I wanted to see if they called her out because I didn't think they did. But yeah, he, there's no, he makes no comments. Just, you know, contact the families. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the the thing that's different about the motion picture, and I don't say this as an excuse because there is a divided fandom on this. And part of it is it's not all just about if you were alive then, but people who were alive and conscious of it and saw it in context and had a few years before it even – this is what like that. There's a duty to to propagate this because yes, any motion picture like any series should stand alone, right? You shouldn't have to have read the promotional stuff. You shouldn't have had to. My God, you shouldn't have had to read the novelization if there's one. You shouldn't have had to have you know kept up with all the interviews ahead of time and seen the previews and pro. You should be able to go in and sit down and watch any movie and and then it should be able to be judged on its merits right then. And then maybe the passage of time alters that. And this is the only one of the Star Trek movies that I will say, yes, of course, and it has its flaws, and some things were, you know, pacing and cutting and all that, and, and original goals and dreams to visualize it were, were handled with the director's cut that they oversaw, and hopefully they'll get to 4K now or whatever it now, uh, the way Darren Dockerman's been teasing. But the motion picture beyond any other Trek movie is the one that you need to realize what it was besides just what you sit down and watch on a screen. Because the motion picture, <laughs> when some people trot out the idea that until the first J.J. movie, this made the most money of any Star Trek movie, more than Wrath of Khan, more than Voyage Home, right. you know, yada yada, more than First Contact, it made the most money. Why? With all its flaws? Because there was 10 years of pinup demand for it, because the whole point of fandom in the beginning was to get Star Trek back. Mm-hmm. It wasn't to figure out what to do next. It wasn't to figure out, go do this, do that. It wasn't to, you know, the whole point of fandom was, you took our show away from us, damn it, and we want it back. And until we get it back, we'll make up our own stories and we'll do our own, you know, we'll make our own costumes and our props and we'll do our own tech manuals and we'll do our own things. So, yeah, on you. You know, and somewhere somebody would say, if you guys want to make some money, just do it again. And then you went through all the stuff of how to do that, you know, the 70s. And it was like you'd be teased and, you know, and we're getting into that on the truck files and people, you know, there are songs sung about this throughout the empire about what the 70s were like. And you'd be teased and Gene's trying to do other things and not be held back to his old product. But at the same time, he had this winner, winner, chicken dinner thing here that he couldn't get rid of. And he's walking the line between trying to do other projects and sell things and keep this alive, which had never been done before. No dead show had ever been brought back years later, much less with the same people. But they're all 10 years older. Who's going to go watch that? I mean, you know, that's the suit bean counter mentality. And the fact that Star Trek broke this paradigm and did all that and that it's this synergy thing of they had wanted to do it for years and they were bungling around trying to find the right way. And some of it was Gene's fault and some of it was people not getting it and Paramount was turning over in leadership and then George Lucas gets his funding for his film because of Star Wars breaking out and then Star Star Trek gets made because of Star you know that little synergy is so karmically ironic now that people try to you know make the clickbait battle between the fandoms (laughs) 
where they actually helped each other. And then you finally, finally, and then a TV series, and then it's not a TV series on a new network. It's going to go back to the theater bigger. We're going to we're going to blow so much money on this. You won't believe <laughs> the human spending adventure is just beginning, you know. <laughs> And then, and then here it is. So you had all – so the motion picture to me, unlike any other Trek movie, even like with J.J.'s – with the Kel- with Star Trek 09 where it came back out of whatever, nothing can compare with the experience of all of us going to the movie when it was first out. And back then too, this also helped get uh, the rescue of Gilligan's Island on TV, in my opinion, <laughs> to, to reunite a cast. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh yes, anyway. that too. <laughs> that too. <laughs> but you know, the, they had a cloud on there too. With the motion picture, though, we can't forget <laughs> they completely changed the style of everything. They changed all the uniforms, and the Klingons don't even look the same. Like, ah, oh, up in arms. No, I'm Wait, sorry. Are you talking about Discovery. I'm sorry, we're talking about Wait. the motion picture and the novelization tonight. Oh, we're not. oh yeah, that too. <laughs> you know, because now this is interesting because Alan Dean Foster wrote the story and 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 screenplay right to the motion picture, but Gene Roddenberry wrote the novelization. Mm-hmm. Well, How did that all work out? The script for the motion picture was the pilot for for Phase Two, or it wasn't called Phase Two. It was. Every time there was a read, this is what's fun about going back to the, the Trek files and Gene's papers is every time. You know, now we say the God thing, we say Planet of the Titans, we say Phase 2 for the TV show. But every time there was an iteration, even the first time they thought about doing an animation four years before it filmation, which I don't know if um, if Aaron and Rich get into that in their book. I haven't got to swallow it up yet. But every time there was going to be anything that was going to be a, the new Star Trek form, whatever it was, you look at the script page and Gene just called it Star Trek 2. Which has led to a lot of confusion. People see Star Trek Two and they think Wrath of Khan. It's like, well, this is a Wrath of Khan. It's like, no, everything that was going to be the next thing after 1969, he he started off calling it Star Trek Two. Hmm. Then later on, we've given it these post names of you know the God the God thing, and then Planet of the Titans, and then Phase Two, and and um, and probably even in the early days of the motion picture before they came out and did that when they had the big press conference and had the painted. It looks like the 20s letters, the roaring 20s letters, mm-hmm. a big press yeah. conference, and it was a big splash. And they had the whole cast there, and they did the big Paramount, we're going to make this a mega movie, big budget, smash epic feature treatment to get that across. Yeah, everything got called, everything got called to it. But Phase 2, the series, was going to launch the Paramount Network. It was going to do Fox only, you know, 10 years before Fox. And it was going to be Voyager only 20 years before Voyager and UPN. But when Diller first wanted to have the fourth, the original fourth network and have it be Paramount, and stop me if you heard this before, it was going to be, right, phase two was going to be the flagship of the new network, because if you've got, even then, they were like, we're going to launch a new thing, we need, our strongest thing is Star Trek to, you know, put out there. And and um, they had like 13 scripts commissioned, and, it, and Nimoy wouldn't be back, just a real quick here, Nimoy would not come back and do it, he thought about maybe doing an appearance in the pilot, and then Zahn was going to be the fool's Falcon science officer, so show it would be a different dynamic. And the poor guy that was cast to be Zahn was David Gautreaux, and he winds up being Commander Branch in the motion picture as a, all of, you know, as a caveat. But Ilea mm-hmm. and Decker are all going to be characters in the series, and then when they yank that, because they realize it's not going to make money, and they want to outdo Star Wars and Close Encounters and all of that, and make this a big budget, they just took the pilot episode, the two-hour pilot, called In Thy Image, and just rewrote it. So that's why, yeah, that's why his name is 
That's why Ellen Dean did Foster's he write name. The, who wrote the pilot episode? Uh, well, he did. And then, you know, Gene okay. rewrote and rewrote. And John Povel, who was a story editor, was in there, too. But the original script, the two-hour pilot for Phase 2, the series, was called In Thy Image. And to hurry things up, because they'd been through this development hell with two different scripts in the 70s, they went, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to f*** around with this thing anymore. We're going to do it, do it big. Just take the damn two-hour pilot and blow that up. That looks good. And then they did. So Alan Dean Foster, when he wrote that pilot, that was like 77. That was like an eternity and a half ago <laughs> by the time mm. they actually got down to doing the movie and then thinking of like spinoff things like, you know, the novel. Yeah, because the novel says on the cover, a novel by Star Trek's creator Gene Roddenberry based on the screenplay by Harold Livingston and the story by Alan Dean Foster. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's quite interesting. And, and Gene, I don't think, had ever written a novel. Oh, you have the photo story. And the too. photo story, since the photo books had been, the photo novels for the episodes had been good, somebody thought, oh, we should do a photo, a photo novel for the motion picture, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting, too. But it's the same, you yeah. know, the, the 13 or so uh, photo novels for episodes that they'd sold off in the 70s in the era before you had, you know, VHS tapes, much less DVDs. Mm-hmm. And it was a great way to have a chunk of this thing in hand that you could look at. And, and same credits. Screenplay by Harold Livingston, Storm Alan Dean Foster. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad we've kind of brought up Alan Dean Foster because this has kind of been a myth surrounding this novelization as well, that Alan Dean Foster ghost wrote it and they put Roddenberry's name on it. But that is unequivocally not the case. Like, And I think part of that comes from that story credit for, for the motion picture script. But Gene Roddenberry undoubtedly wrote this. <laughs> There's... There's too many interesting, weird little sex things all through here for exactly. it not to have been Gene Roddenberry. Yeah. I'm glad yeah. you said that because. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's like, who else? But, unless he's sitting over here dictating it like verbatim or something. But Larry, I think you read the wrong version because none of that was in mine. <laughs> you, you were how old when you saw the movie in a theater? <laughs> You but, might want to go back and read it again. That's all I'm saying. And I mean, there's there's also just, you know, reading anything by Alan Dean Foster and comparing it to this. It there's it just doesn't compute. Like it does the, Yeah. Yeah. No, this is definitely so let's officially put that myth to bed here and Oh, now. I didn't I didn't know that was a raging myth, but yes. Oh. I mean, yeah, go read the if nothing read the log books from the animated series novelizations mm-hmm. and yes. Yeah, anytime this novelization yeah. comes out in the comments, someone says that somewhere. And no, no, that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, because he was the Alan D. Foster was the ghostwriter for the Star Wars novelization. Right, that's but the other the, side. It was of published it. with George Lucas's name, so I think that gets all confused. Which I have my original yeah. novelization had Alan Dean Foster sign the Star Wars one. It's yeah, and it can get all confusing. Um, yeah, and uh, this is why I keep you know. Ten years ago, I thought, oh, everything is old. I'm just going to go live in a cave because we have nothing new to talk. Well, now we actually have new Star Trek, but. For a long time, it was. Then I'd see things like this come up and go, you know, guys, we have like we have the interwebs now. Stuff is actually preserved. You don't have to go get sacred tablets and read it. Why? Why are you being so stupid? Like stupid, but like you can go read this. Stop saying stuff you don't know about. (laughs) It's out there. It's not the sacred chalice of Reek's knowledge. I mean, you can go Mm -hmm. get it anywhere. We have, you know. So for people to be saying that, it's like, but, you know, people love to propagate. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the problem, too, is with all this access to information, we have all the access to the people saying the wrong information and having that repeated as well. So, 
Oh, it's an interesting yeah. world we've decided to create. <laughs> you only hear the right information on this show. Only the right exactly. information. But it's interesting that Gene Roddenberry wrote this novel and it wasn't just the script that he did put his own elements in because now you're getting into the head of Gene Roddenberry mm-hmm. of 1979. Now, some of these ideas he may not have had originally with the series. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But now, you know, we get like the Admiral Kirk's preference in here where, you know, Kirk's surname, you know, that this is not a tradition. This is an old tradition of passing on the last name from father to the children is, you know, that's a futuristic idea of, you know, sometimes you take the identity of a family name. Sometimes you don't. Mm-hmm. Well, the, you know? the whole, the whole thing about the book continues again. When you look at the movie in context, so much of the movie we were laughing about how much, you know, this whole thing about everything changed in Discovery. I'm sorry, kids. Do you remember the motion picture? Uniforms, costumes, Klingons, ships, the look, the tech. Everything was different. But in the, in 78 and 79, it was all about, okay, guys, you know how for 10 years you want a big return for Star Trek? We're not just going to bring it back to TV. We're going to make it on a movie. So we get to spend all kinds of movie money, you know, and it's going to look good on a big... I mean, everything was about that. Wait, I'm sorry. What happened to our pretty red and blue and gold uniforms? Oh, they'll look too pajama-like on a big screen. We're going to have these, like, boring Robert <laughs> Wise 2001 colors, you know, these Space 1999 drabble of things. And they talk about how the budget went up and, you know, it was mainly because of the insane visual effects 24-7 for nine months effort. And then the the reshoots and redoing all that stuff. Plus, everything they'd spent on all those monies, all those movies through the 70s, they threw that cost on the bottom line of the motion picture. Which makes it even more amazing that it took in so much money and then didn't go in the hole. And then they decided they knew it was a no-brainer to do another movie, do a sequel quote unquote, they just like Bluthorn told Har Bennett's, you know, can you can you make a movie for <laughs> can you make a movie for less than 150 million? And Har Bennett said, sir, I can make three movies for 150 million, right. you know. Yeah, they spent less than that on the rescue of Gilligan's Island, too. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're, uh, we're really marching down the aisle with that Gilligan's Island uh uh, thing, come back. It was around the same time. But the, but, yeah, but my point here is that that, and then Gene got you know fired, blamed, and fired, and demoted for all you know. It costs so much money, and he was kind of a mess as a producer, a little bit. But a lot of stuff he gets blamed for unfairly. You know, like who knew that Robert April was going to you know that was the studio wanted that, and that was on the visual effects, and that was a blow up. But um, the point is that so much of what you see on screen is them having a wish list and no one said no. Did you no. mean Robert Wise? What did I say? Robert April. No, oh, I, Robert Abel. Mm. Oh, Abel. Robert Abel and Associates, the original visual. Like okay. they, did, they did cool Levi's and 7-Up commercials, and everybody thought they oh, could yeah. do visual effects to rival Star Wars. But, yeah. um, <laughs> but it's like the movie, what you see on screen is like a wish list of stuff. And it's like, not just, we didn't have the money to do this, so now we're going to do it big. And it was also like, and now we're going to have sex on screen. And, you know, we're going to show how immaturely we are about sex, much less everything else. And then what didn't get on screen is, is on the, the page, is in the book. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. like, this is the movie script times five. So all this... This is men are so, from Mars, women are from Venus, Star Trek. No, yes. Nobody. <laughs> uh, that's this whole thing about who ghost wrote it for Gene. It's like, no. This is like, here's what I couldn't get in the movie. I'll put it in the novel. And, you know... Such as what? What did he put in there? Well, the whole... Well, number one, talk about 10 years of fandom. The whole Tahila 
Mm-hmm. Answer to slash fiction. Fiction. I can't right. talk. That's a huge. It's a tiny. Like I said, the if you didn't have the story of the novel, but you just had the end notes. There's enough quasi canon and just the end notes of this thing to set you, right. you know, equal to us uh, two seasons of a normal TV series of a track TV yeah. series. I like that. There's all those notes in there. Mm-hmm. But the Tahila cool. thing, he specifically calls out the whole Kirk Spock, you know, the KS slash. Yeah, because Tahila and Vulcan means. Uh, it means friend, but also means brother and lover. And apparently there were rumors, <laughs> according to these notes, that Kirk and Spock may have been lovers. And that's getting to the whole Kirk, Spock slash fiction. Well, almost right. like a wink. He's, he's yeah. It's really, it's really the best politician in Gene because he's addressing it. He's not giving it credence, but he leaves the door open. So it's like, so you can take away whatever you want to take away. And it's a footnote. So who's really reading that? Wink, wink. So, you know, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I always tease about, is that canon? But, but in this case, this is written by Gene Ronberry. Is this canon? Hmm. Maybe they, maybe there were rumors that Spock and Kirk were lovers and that's canon. Well, it's, there's a whole, as- <laughs> we, you know, we, I guess maybe we should look at some specific topics. We can sit here and like go in circles all night, but there's a whole, um, well, another uh, thing that's brought up early on is, is kind of this uh, world building that Gene Roddenberry does is this idea of the new human society, which I thought mm-hmm. was really fascinating. And like the context of this, like putting myself in the shoes of Gene Roddenberry is as frightening a <laughs> thought as that may be. Um, <laughs> there, there was nothing else of Star Trek except those original three seasons and the animated series. But, you know, this was it. So we hadn't really gotten a look at Earth at all as far as the 23rd century goes. And it wasn't even the 23rd century. It was just some unspecified time in the future. And this kind of whole idea of the new human um, civilization and the fact that primitives are what make up Starfleet. The people we're seeing on screen are throwbacks to the olden days and humans are evolved beyond that. I thought that was really fascinating and just like trying to kind of reconcile that with what we see later, which you really can't do. But at the time, that's all there was, was the original series. So it's an interesting take. Well, I think all of that is, A, it's the 70s, <laughs> for one thing. Okay. <laughs> it's the dawning of B, the age of Aquarius. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, I mean, I mean, just think, you know, all the, we. I mean, it was like the post-hippie, new-agey. Mm-hmm. You know everything, but um, crystal blue persuasion kind of. Yes, you're starting to go there. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, but you were starting to have cults, and you were starting to have you know, uh, uh, you know, TM. I mean, all this the the cycle babble, self involvement. You know, uh, schools, and I don't want to say cults, but movements. That's what he called this. He called it a new humans movement, but. Mm Part of part of these endnotes and things, starting with Tahila and other things, I think were there were ten years of people going off and doing zine editions, and there were there were fan theories, you know, all kinds of things over the years, and things that he like you said, things he wanted to do. I mean, the 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 animated series got into some of the things he wanted to do, like uh, the holodeck or the rec deck or whatever. Which, yeah, if you go back and read the making of Star Trek, he says there are holograms. They all like, they talked about him as a, as a relief for homesickness. You know, you can go visit your home planet in the holiday. They didn't think about so much for training, much less, you know, sex or whatever you want to do. I'm going to recreate uh, my, my film noir film detective uh, hero here and not, you know, fiction. You know, we're going to refight Sherlock Holmes. I'm going to go to Ireland. Whatever, <laughs> whatever it is you think you need to do with the holodeck. Um, uh, the Vulcan love goddess of, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> 
uh, or, you know, the baseball uh, Buck Bokai's team. But it, it, he wanted that originally. He just didn't have the mind to do it or portray it. But he said it out loud, and it's in all the books from the – it's in his the, the Bible from the 60s so that when – French uh, Schnabel, French Joseph Schnabel did the blueprints on his own, but with kind of in league with. There's holographic view cubicles and rooms all over the place in the old original, you know, the 1701 blueprints from 73 and 74. It's, so, and then it winds up in the animated, and and we don't. It's not really part of the movie series until we get to Next Generation. But that's an example of all the things that he had floating in his head. That was just a matter of how can we get them, get them out there. So, yeah, a lot of what you see coming up, and not even that, but in the, any of the incidental material. What's weird to me, there are two things, and since we got on this topic, I have been, I kept assuming they were in the novel, and they, but what's funny is they've come back up again in recent years, or at least one of them has. One of them is this whole thing, and it's, it's said here, it's, this part is in the novel, where Kirk says, he's almost in, in his foreword, and he says, he's writing in first person, and says he's almost embarrassed because Starfleet made such a PR uh, bonanza out of him and his crew, and they right. blown us up to larger than life, which is funny. You know, it's like the Captain Scully here or something or whatever. Sully, I mean. But um, um, yeah, Scully was a different thing. That is in there. What I've been trying to find, I know, I swear to God, in 1978 and 79, I read it somewhere where they said, and to honor his crew and the Enterprise, they decided to, you know, get rid of ship-to-ship patches and insignias and make the Enterprise insignia the insignia of all Starfleet. Mm-hmm. Which we, you know, that no one just that did, no one dreamed that up. It was there, and then we've come into this thing. We've now we've kind of retconned that back now to, um, you know, despite what you saw on on um, on you know on the constellation and on the defi- uh, the retcon defiant yeah. from Enterprise and the uh, uh, the Omega uh, the um, uh, Omega? Exeter. Omega Glory. The Exeter, duh. Um, despite what you saw there, and you know, like the Bob Justman, this is like John Cooley's, you know, um, uh, campaign here, the, the Bob Justman memo where he's yelling about the, the Omega Glory patch, but they had already done it on the Constellation. Well, that meant, I mean, that whole little debate, really no one ever thought about it because they didn't have the money to show other ships. And if they, But I swear to God, that was put down somewhere in some of the, it's obviously not on a screen. I have right. gone back to the novel. I cannot find it. It had to be in some promotional. I, yeah. I but but a lot of we didn't have this like mass hallucination. We all envisioned that from the time that became the thing and was out there. And it came from Paramount, where there was an interview with Robert Fletcher or something. But but I know it was in something that came from somewhere. But but the bit about we are the first ship to come back relatively intact from our five year mission with crew and ship intact that is right. in the, mm-hmm. Roddenberry did do that yeah but yes. yeah all the way through here are little bits that he's putting in basically to either like to highlight he's either answering and if you have no idea all this is going on it's fine it goes right past you but Gene all through the novel at least is like taking the moment because it's cheap words are cheap <laughs> on a piece of paper ink. He's like addressing either a controversy or he's seen like different divergent theories and he's going to he's going to put down the law as to what he thinks that, you know, the theory should be. So Tahila yeah. is the big one. But um, there's some little things that he, you know, he talks about. So I mean, we, well, I also feel like he's doing a recon to when he says like the new humans and oh, the missions were fictionalized larger than life about Kirk and all. It's it's taking that in-universe perspective and calling out the episodes as if, you know, well, these were little, 
you know, exaggerated and, oh, the new humans, you know, the humans that you saw on the Enterprise are more primitive people. And now we have these humans that on, on New Earth that are more intelligent. But I wonder if the brain of Gene Roddenberry, his opinions of the series changed from the late 60s to the late 70s to the point where those characters are more primitive. They're more like the 20th century. And because when we get to the next generation, he makes everybody more perfect. When we get to the next generation, I feel like this is his way of calling out that, well, those characters aren't really how I would portray them now. So I'll just say that they're more primitive on starships and, you know, and the missions were a little exaggerated. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I think, um, I think there are a couple of things. And like, you know, in the meantime, um, like David Gerald had written his books where he had some critiques and a lot of things they answered in the next generation. Like it's silly to have a captain, no naval vessel captain would jump off his ship, be the first one ashore. You know, you send other people, the captain's too valuable to do that. You know, you don't, no one uses a transporter that breaks down every other episode so what are you doing with that so okay fine so we'll, we'll have, have so next generation instead. exactly exactly <laughs> we've got perfect transporters and our holodeck breaks down um a lot of those things you know over as the years went by and you're out of the week to week get the damn show done and you and and it's something that is of value enough that it hangs around and people don't just enjoy it but on the you know, the 30th or 40th or 47th viewing, people are starting to look at the trends and the meat. You know, on the fun side, it's all the tropes and memes. But on the other side, it's like, well, if we really do care about this, we can critique this. And you start coming up with some of those things. And part of that was by t- within 10 years, some of the things that you would say. And, and this whole new humans thing, it looks like it addresses two things. One, because he sets it up in his narrative talking and Kirk, this is Kirk talking first person, you know, he's like, well, I know some people are into this whole new humans, of which Decker was supposed to be sympathetic, Mm -hmm. which we get it when we get into the whole thing about jumping in the stream and melding with Delta, you know, with Ilea to form the new thing. That's kind of like, you know, setting up foreshadowing that he's going to be open to, you know, the individuality versus the group you read. He described Kirk describes that new humans thing as people who are willing to submerge their individuality to be a heightened human and be more part of a group, which is sounds like it's on the road to boredom, you know, which is kind of funny now. But they say that they got, they started, that became popular because of a Vulcan study that showed the early Starfleet crews were such perfect specimens that they were so pliant that then when they would encounter new life and, you know, super aliens and whatever, whatever, they would, they would, could be seduced by that or that they would get hung up and there were crew mutinies apparently earlier. So I don't know if he's looking back at some of the tropes from the episodes and seeing mutinies and deaths and some of the superhumans and people, you know, the Carolyn Palamases and the Madeline uh, uh, MacGyvers, you know, kind of thing and trying to excuse away what 10 years of, the style of the 60s into the style of 70s and people loving the show, but looking back at some of the right. excesses and going, eh, just like you would put women in pantsuits and pants now and get them out of the miniskirts. Even though miniskirts were an act of rebellion in the 60s. I have to <laughs> remind everybody of that. That's true. Yeah. Yes. That's really interesting because like that, that decade removed from the original series, I feel like during the run of the series, of course, Roddenberry is just a showrunner who's kind of in the weeds trying to get that next episode out. And then a decade later, it's no longer just a TV show. It's this whole thing. Like, it's Star Trek. And now it has to... Yeah, this big philosophy. Yeah, it's a philosophy. Exactly. And he wants to make that world real. 
And Gene yeah. is not just a producer trying to sell pilots of projects. He's a guy trying to pay his mortgage. So he's talking on the college campuses and now he's a guru. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where we are now. And he's, you know, believing his own. I mean, it's all good stuff. It makes a lot of people, you know, aspirational for the future. But yes, it, the t- tables had totally turned and he's 10 years older and um, and he's already start. You know, the, they say Picard is 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 Roddenberry as an older man and Kirk is. Gene is a younger, you know, the guy that rode motorcycles and experimented with drugs, and that's young Gene, and and Picard is older Gene. Well, here's here's uh, ten years later, Kirk mellowing a little bit in the middle of all that too. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, he's the um, that. So yeah, the new the new humans is kind of like a sop to both trying to explain away some of the rough edges of the drama tropes they used in the '60s and say this is a reaction away from that, and then it's also though in Kirk saying. But I'm not one of them because that same 10 years of kind of reflection, people are going, wait a minute, why? It's 200 years in the future. Why is Scotty still talking with a brogue? Why is Chekhov still talking with a really bad Russian accent? Why, right. you know, all the cultural heritage, uh, you know, you got hints of that when when um, Uhura is so past it. She says, you know, Lincoln calls her a negress and she's like, ah, it's OK. It's an old term. I don't care. You know, she's so beyond worrying about anything PC or not. And people would say, what is with the cultural clinging? And that's to me, I think that's also what that answers. When Kirk says, well, we're kind of throwbacks. And then eventually they studied things and figured out that we were actually healthier and stronger mentally for space travel than the new humans. You know, some of that movement were. So I, I think it's I think it's addressing two things that way. And, and again, it's all things that after 10 years of reflection, what people were starting to notice you know, and and the '60s giving way to the '70s, and just culturally and and sociologically, can I say that? Uh, looking at what you know, they love the basic tenets of Star Trek, but the you know more things in the Christmas light consoles were starting to <laughs> evolve in sensibility. You the know. things that we would today call problematic, or you know, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's us. But there you go. It's all. It's the beginnings of retconning. You know, it's why I say texture, not trivia. It's like we're going to smooth this out with an explanation, not just, oh, I'm sorry, it's the 60s. Let's just ignore it and move on, you know, (laughs) try to ignore it. But here he's, you know, there's lots, there's so much goobery good stuff just for the fun's sake in the, what am I doing that? In the, in the novel. But there, I think some of these, the Tahila is certainly like the biggest one. Mm -hmm. And then the, yeah, and people forget that whole, because it got dropped. And then you get into like, you know, next gen. And and the DS9 era, and you have everything from like the new fundamentalists. I mean, you have move, you see movements, right? And on Bajor and on Cardassia, and and uh, and you see you see that within other cultures. It's kind of people like forget that like this was the original. Aside from whatever the hell uh, Severin and the space hippies were trying to do, <laughs> but uh, but this is kind of like the first time somebody tried to give some. You know, it's not all just cookie cutter. Starfleet guys and gals. Yeah, and, and what interests me, because one of the things I want to also point out in Chapter 1, um, it starts off differently than the film because Kirk is like in Northern oh. Africa on, on his vacation, and he has this sense-seaver in his head <laughs> because he gets an emer- a Starfleet emergency signal that's sent to this thing in his implanted in his brain. And this, plus some of the things we were just talking about, we've never seen used. He's in the screen. Admiralty, yeah. I'm kind of surprised if Gene Reinberry came up with these ideas in this book. We haven't. Why haven't we seen those used even in the next generation? 
when he was overseeing? Well, I think the ideas came up as he wrote the, like, the, the amazing thing when you look at the novel, it's like, where does what you see on screen actually happen? It's like two or three chapters go by of the novel right. before you actually get to the scripted, you know, filmed uh, bit. And so he's mm. fleshing it out. There wasn't a two hour movie script. You need a little bit more to at least get a, you know, a five eighths inch thick paperback. <laughs> um, and so some of that's just fleshing out the movie like anybody would do when they novelize. But um, yeah, all this prologue stuff is where it's also good because he can he can do 10 years of backstory for anybody who if you care enough to see a movie that you want to see the novel. And they knew that fans would, of course, snap up the novel like that, snap up the novel. Um, he's getting again, it's it's like one more last stop that he can cram stuff in. Now, why he wasn't carried on? Well, he got dethroned. He's not doing the movies, much less writing novelizations now. It's all no, out of his hands. but when he gets hand. to the next generation, you know, he was overseeing that show. I'm surprised he didn't work in, you know, references to new humans or had the writer staff doing these things. I, yeah, I don't know if um, if somebody actually said that's an that's an interesting thing. If somebody actually said, I could just see him having like Richard or Susan or somebody like sit down and go go through all the movie scripts and let's figure out what we like and don't like. Or I don't know if like he. I'd like to f- – oh, this is a whole good topic. I'd like to – I don't know if something exists to get Gene's attitude about the motion – the whole motion picture experience as the years went by because he was so focused on trying to keep his throne and keep his voice even as he had to politically give way you know, to Har Bennett running the movies. And then when he was able to get that back and not have that, that cadre do the new series, but he was able to grab that back and kind of right some of the wrongs and get back some of the respect and the – and the finances and the status, you know, um, with with the next generation. He was kind of like – and even the three-year cancellation for the original series. There was so much that got fixed with the next generation, I think, in his ego and status and, and you know, well-being. Um, that he's getting his, uh, you know, ha-ha world. See, I wasn't a fluke and I wasn't a fluke and I didn't, you know, I didn't just was a lucky guy that stumbled over the right rock and we picked up a treasure chest and I had nothing to do with any of this. It is me. It really was me. And now we're going to do it again. So he got a lot of that back with Next Generation. And I, I, I don't know, and I'd like to now go look and see if he talks in some interview somewhere about his feelings about the motion picture, if he tried to bury it, because I don't think he went around going, you know, I was so wrongly accused. Everything that I got thrown at me, I was dumped on for the motion picture. And uh, I mean, we're talking about the novel, but the whole ball of wax. Because right. the 80s just turned into him trying to survive and keep his head above water and, you know, st- stick up for what he believed in, which wasn't just with Harv. Sometimes it would be with Shatner and, and Nimoy, like who was running a movie and how they would work things out. And, you know, those memos are back and forth. But how he looked at the whole motion picture experience. Um, so when they sit down to do Next Generation, you're talking about the transceivers. I don't know if they sat down and, like, wanted to go back and go, oh, let's put all this out. Because, like, no, like, those uniforms never got used again. <laughs> you know, like, nobody yeah. even pulled them out to go, oh, look, here's, here's a flashback scene. For, like, they did the maroons all the time, right? All through. Next generation. Oh, here's Jack Crusher's yeah. throwback holodeck, you know, or here's young Picard with hair getting stabbed. Any of those scenes, they would go back to the Maroons. Well, in timeline, the Maroons had obviously replaced the pajamas. And these these could have been around for a lot longer because people forget, you know, the motion picture is two years, two and a half years after Turnabout Intruder or the animated series actually should be. 
but then it's like another 15, 16 years until Wrath of Khan. So those, mm-hmm. a lot of things could have been in play in universe canon timeline for a long time. So it's not like in our perspective, oh, those were like horrible uniforms. They tried them and they ditched them in two years. That's what Par- <laughs> that's what Paramount did. It, well, it's interesting too because you know with new Star Trek, they're mining some things that you know from the old series and even some from the novels or notes or whatever we may get references to some of these things Mm -hmm. in a future discovery picard whatever series there may be a reference to the new humans on earth it might be just a line in a show i mean it would not surprise me if somebody digs in through these well now that the fine hand of kirsten Beyer is showing itself more and more not just that she's in there swinging but that she's got clout now and is being listened to more and more and michael Mm -hmm. shabon appears to be a willing a willing, I can't wait to talk to them because it's like I'm starting to see – I feel like I'm starting to see the the beauty of someone saying, no, no, canon does not have to be a, an anchor around our necks. There are billions of things we can explore, which is what I've said. Right. And I go, you know, David and Dayton and all the no- – Kirsten, all the novelists have been doing this for years, pulling bits of the can- old, new, adjacent, whatever, and pulling them into th- – yes, it's ostensibly a Voyager novel or a next-gen novel, but – it's the universe, which is why I always think it's funny when somebody says, oh, that's they see something and they go, oh, that's just fanboys. That's just fan service. And I go, no, it's not fa- unless it's stupidly gratuitous, you know, like if they walk by and go, oh, look, I just when did you get that poster of a triple anatomy? Oh, I just got it yesterday. Wow, that's fun. OK, well, back to our story. I mean, that's fan service. <laughs> <laughs> right. But if you use the universe, you know. I mean, that's that's called using the universe. That's not fan service to me. So, yeah. But things like the – it's funny how he brings up the transceivers in the novel, but then he immediately talks about the mind control revolts because they got politicized. Yeah. You know, on yeah. the heels of the eugenics wars, <laughs> enhancing humans. It's kind of like, eh. So, I don't know. I just – you know, and then it's all before World War Three. So, it's it's funny. Someday, somebody's going to – if by the time we get around to doing – the 21st century Star Trek shows, like you know, pre-Archer, pre-World War III, or whatever, it'll be like the it'll be like the Caprica of Star Trek or something. <laughs> it'll probably die, and by the time we get there, we'll be like in those years anyway, so it'll all be a moot point. But yeah, I want to um, see like a short Trek episode about the mind control revolt, like what, the bloody mind control revolt. Bloody now, yeah. <laughs> Is it the bloody mind control revolt revolt because it was, you know, a, a horrible bloody thing or did just like a working class Brit name it? <laughs> oh, it was bloody mind control revolt. <laughs> That's so annoying. That's so annoying. I didn't ask for the bloody mind control revolts. Yeah. No one expected the bloody mind control revolts. Um, no, that's to me. That's like of all the 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 end note canon that's wacky through the novelization, and we still barely like scratches. The mind control revolts are like the what? It's like, do you really? So are we like gonna this whole thing about is it really canon? Even though it's in Gene's novel, are we gonna treat this like some Jerry Taylor stuff about Bellana or something? And just kind of go, <laughs> well, she wrote it, but everybody immediately ignored it, and she lost her clout, so no one had to you know follow it. But uh, yeah, I want to. Yes, let's start a petition, Dan. The bloody. We want the the mind control revolt short trek. Uh, now I don't know if I want my name on this, but okay. Oh, oh, okay. I'll take my name on anything that's Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, and more Star Trek 
whatever. Yes, I'm on board. Never mind. I take back that what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> the the other thing we were talking about the whole thing with the patch and supposedly they're going to honor the Enterprise being the first and only ship to come back. Rel- I love that phrase. The relatively intact after its five year mission. The other thing that I swear, and this is much not near as big a deal to, to people, but it is to me. I swear to God, somewhere in the middle of talking about McCoy spending his time out. Dec- uh, uh, decoding the Fabrini technique, you know, throwback to to Natira, and for the world is hollow. That he's spending his time on Earth uh, trying to bring the Fabrini medical knowledge into the mainstream. And the novel says that he goes into the new sick bay with Chapel. By the way, there's a great McCoy. You know, all those bits in the movie, you go, well, well, Gene did get them in. Like there is a McCoy Chapel scene where they talk to each other, and like you mm-hmm. know, and he's like oh, that whole thing about, oh, I bet she's a doctor now. You know, I don't know. They actually give him a moment. And she mm-hmm. says, well, basically, she be, she got her doctorates finished, like, right after the five-year mission. She's had it for two years. So, she's not even green around the gills uh, doctoring. But somewhere, the novel says he'd been off translating uh, the Fabrini and that he was pleased to see a lot of Fabrini technology and medical knowledge, in, in you know, put into the biocomps, put into the Starfleet uh, database. Somewhere, though... I swear to God, I read that he, somebody official had postulated that. Now, he was doing that, but what he was doing for a day job, basically, and yes, I know money, blah, blah, blah. But what he was doing for a day job was he was so getting away from, like, humans. He wasn't quite hermiting, but he was, like, next door hermiting back home in Georgia, working as a veterinarian for, like, the farmers and the agricultural. Basically said he was kind of a recluse while he translated the Fabrini records and on the side, just for a day job, he was acting as a veterinarian and treating people's animals, you know, just around mm-hmm. him in local Georgia. He was in the back hills in Georgia being a veterinarian, treating animals while he was translating the Fabrini records. But you don't remember where you And I have looked that, and right? looked. I did not dream that. I've said that for years and the last five or ten years since people shove a microphone in my face now and it's like recorded – and I'm going, you know, I want to, it's like, it's exactly like the pat. It's the Enterprise, uh, Starfleet adopts the Enterprise patch thing. I'm like, I cannot, I know I saw it. I cannot find where that is. And that's even more arcane and obscure than the, the Enterprise patch thing is. Hmm. I, I know I did not dream that. Weren't there like uh, publications around this time of biographies of the characters or something? Or right before the Star Trek II, I think there was something. Well, they did a ton. Like well, there was a paperback that a guy put together called uh, Star. He interviewed people on one. It was the Star Trek interviews. And then he did one of character biographies that was horrible. <laughs> it was like, it's like pocket books for the first two or three years yeah. when they would do nonfiction books. All this fan stuff had been, like, vetted and put out there and the best of fans doing stuff on their own and working out timelines and, you know, figuring things out and things being just after a while, after five or ten years being accepted. And it's almost like there was some – I haven't found a smoking gun memo, but it's almost like somebody – the spaceflight chronology is the same way to me. But it's like all these details are put in and they're, like, exactly opposite or they're totally not using anything – that basically all of fandom in paper and stamp days had kind of settled, or the, the echelon of fandom, the layer of fandom that cared about that, that weren't all the women writing zine magazines and doing Spock stories, 
um, like the 10% of the world that was into background fandom had all kind of settled on this stuff. And some of it came from the fiction side. And it's like the official pocketbooks, the first ones, uh, like rejected all this. And it was, unless it was on film. And it was just like, well, this is nice, but it's. And what's funny is over the years, like all that stuff is the spaceflight chronology and the, and the, um, Star Trek two biographies. But it's like all that stuff has been like not rejected. It's like it's just been forgotten about and never used. And as yeah. time moved on, everybody, because the Iras and the Rons of the world, Ron Moores of the world and the Rene Echeverrias of the world were all fanboys too. And they all read the stuff that made sense and had been around forever. Um, you know, like D7 for Klingon, the original Klingon Battlecruiser was never canon. It came out, totally came out of fans who were trying to make up an alphabet for the three characters you saw on the pylon of, a, of the original Klingon Battlecruiser. And somebody turned that into something like D07 or something. And so D7 came from that original alphabet. But that was never official until Ron put it into the retconning in Trials and Tribulations on DS9. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's interesting how they went with some things and not others. Like you're saying, they just kind of forgot well, about things was, or just changed it. It was or, kind of like fan sensibility. It's like, this is why this whole thing about canon nowadays is really interesting, and it's it's not black and white. And canon has evolved because Star Trek has evolved. And there are a lot – you know, right. it's like USPA, United Earth Space Probe Agency, versus – Starfleet. They were evolving the show. One of them eventually wound up. You've got two on film. You've got a United Air Space Probe Agency and you've got USPA said. And somewhere along the way, and then, you know, good old Jeff Bandel brings it back and sticks it on the side of Friendship One at the end of Voyager. <laughs> so now you really can't run away from it. But it's like I say, texture, not trivia. It's like rather than sitting and go, oh, oh, this is wrong and this is right. They made a mistake. It's like, no, no, no. Like, figure out like real the real world is not perfectly made there are exceptions to every rule there's texture in the grain you listen to an actor talk about if it's a comedy try to find the dramatic moments if it's a drama try to find the comedic moments for texture and it's like take all that and come up with the wacky why you know what was that about there's something somebody latched you know whatever so a lot of that stuff. So that's that's that. But that's why bringing this back around, why it was so cool, the Klingon battlecruisers, to distinguish them not being the smooth-sided, cheapy little things from the series. Gene gives them this, you know, never is this uttered on screen, but every little tech nerd <laughs> knows what a Katinga, you know, Klingon battlecruiser is. And it's only because he came up with that, Gene came up with that word and gave it to them in the novel. It's not in the movie. You know, nobody mm-hmm. says, Captain, we were right. picking up uh, three Klingon Tekinga heavy battle cruisers on the, you know, Epsilon 9. Mm-hmm. But again, that's, yeah. a, that's a very tiny little thing, but it, that totally comes from the novel. Yeah, absolutely. So I have discovered uh, Dr. McCoy <laughs> as a veterinarian. Uh, for Where? You. Where? Oh, it oh. is apparently from the uh, script for the God thing. Uh, McCoy has left Starfleet to become a veterinarian. Um, okay. That is one reference oh. that I found to it anyway. And it stayed well, and then either it just stayed in the ether in my brain. <laughs> but I didn't see I, mean, I didn't see the script for the God thing. I mean, like if, if it was a talking point that D said out loud somewhere or Gene said out loud somewhere, that or maybe too, somebody yeah. with access, you know, at conventions talking, and it was just in the ether by mm-hmm. 74, 75, and it just floated. Or even when they were promoting and doing the motion picture, and it was just out there. And, and it makes sense because Gene Roddenberry was working on a novelization of the God thing as well uh, that mm-hmm. was never released. 
Um, so it makes sense that he would have all of those notes and, and things that he'd be working on and talking about. So it, I so want that novel. Isn't I know every time I see well, the like mock-up of the cover and stuff, I'm like, and, can and someone uh, finish this please? <laughs> Michael, uh, Michael, um, Jan Friedman. Jan Friedman was had a contract to do it. The mm-hmm. basic problem is that there was never a coherent God thing finished script. Right. And we're going to get into this eventually on the Trek files, but um, I got Ooh. to figure out how to get our arms around all these 70s movie scripts. But that's that's why we haven't dived into them yet. And, and there's so many iterations of things and back and forth and notes, but the notes don't mean anything unless you can see like see what the drafts were and like how do we do it. But basically, it was like it was like the impossible. It's like. <laughs> It's like some movie projects I know where they shoot and shoot and shoot and they even shoot a script. But then when they're wound up with is like, it's just, it doesn't hang together. Mm. It doesn't, you know, make a thing, doesn't flow. And so you're, and then that's, maybe that's kind of why it was rejected. Or maybe you had a narrative draft, you know, prose draft. But then when you went to script form, it never got done because it was, they pulled the plug on it. So you never finished it. So yeah, trying to make hash there, you know. And, and the thing kept changing and it was rejected for a reason. Maybe it was rejected because it was a horrible story or a wacky story. So trying to clean it up for a novel is problematic because, you know, if Gene could have, he would have. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and things are much more into you know self-publishing now. And, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, we were still in you know old school. Publishing houses had to print books and send them out in cartons to bookstores to get to you kind of a thing. And now. The digital revolution, but and maybe you'd think about it being a little more fluid now, and that could happen. Maybe someday somebody will take another shot at it. But oh, that I would, would be love great. That. I would love I mean, that so much. We, but we need it up, of course. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of print books, and, and you mentioned pocket books earlier. Star Trek: The Motion Picture was the first novel published by Pocket Books, and here we are, all these years later, and Simon Schuster is still printing Star Trek novels since 1979. That's when, you know, they, that's when everything realigned and everything, you know, like all the nonfiction books, Space Flight Chronology and the, any of the, you know, the, the cost, make your own costume book and the motion picture sticker book. I mean, they licensed it big time. It all flopped. <laughs> um, you know, they had, they had a lot of action figures and all the time. The, the first Happy Meals at McDonald's were licensed. Um, they didn't have Happy Meals and then did a motion picture version. They launched Happy McDonald's launched Happy Meals in the boxes for kids with the motion picture uh, promotional. I remember getting one of those when I was a kid. Oh man! <laughs> had, I didn't keep it though. But I mean, I remember I remember sitting in the car and eating out of that box. That would have been so nineteen seventy nine because like this came out in December. I was oh gosh, I wasn't even that young. I was uh, tw- twelve. But still, you know, I mean, 12, I mean, Happy Meals kind of skew younger, but I just, I think I did because it was new. It was cool, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, I want the box thing, you know? <laughs> There's a toy inside, too. Come on. Oh, I, w- I would have loved that. I, I, this I is cooler than Cracker like, Jack. kind of sad because 1979, I was negative three. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Well, so. Well, the food still tastes the same, Dan. So if you want to go to McDonald's. <laughs> no, I want, I, want the, I want the motion picture box. <laughs> I know. I've seen the ads on YouTube with the Klingons, though. There were like six. Um, there were like six varieties. There were like six different boxes, basically. Oh wow! I mean, the meal was the same, but there were like six different printed. You know, that had one of them had a little game on a thing with movers, and some of them just had puzzles around the box. And anyway, 
the the uh, back to the novel. The other cool thing that's in the novel that's not on screen is the belt buckles. I mm-hmm, I yes. always knew they were called per scans. I don't know what the rest of the world is so confused about. There is, <laughs> it's like what I call canon in a vacuum. If somebody comes up with something that halfway is reliable and nobody has counted it on film, then that's what it is. And if the person doing it's Gene Roddenberry, what is the big deal? Now, you know? one of the things about those specifically in this novel that I found really interesting, and I didn't remember from reading it before, but really <laughs> st- stuck out to me this time, was, uh, of course, like you said, they're per-scan devices. They transmit the medical data from each person to sickbay. Um, and even the idea of like data privacy is brought up in the novel, which I had not caught on to before because the last time I read this novel, that probably wasn't even really on anyone's mind anyway, mm-hmm. but this novel, Gene Roddenberry had it way before anyone else here. You know, your, your personal data is being transmitted on some sort of network, um, there's no chance that anyone else will be able to intercept it because of all these triple redundancy things. And I was like, that's brilliant. Like, who thinks of that? That's great. <laughs> What's sad is between this and Wrath of Khan, though, there, there were the bloody medical privacy data revolts. <laughs> <laughs> Those bloody medical privacy data revolts. <laughs> but I thought that was interesting that he got went down that road with the uh, with the transceiver, the senseiver. Mm. And uh, yeah. Well, then there's also the, Dan, I know that you want to talk about V'ger's perspective in this book, that mm. we get more of that yeah. from a book that we can't get in a movie. So there's there's an entire chapter that's all from V'ger's perspective, which, you know, was not something they were able to do in the film. And I find, you know, I, I've watched the motion picture a million times, so, you know, I understand it backwards and forwards. I love that movie. But you know, it, it could be a little confusing not knowing exactly what happened to V'ger, how it came to be what it is, and what its ultimate goal is without, you know, the characters kind of figure it out and, and say it. But in this novel, we get basically all of those questions are answered in this one uh, chapter because V'ger kind of recounts his journey and says what he's trying to find and uh, what he expects to find. And it's just all laid out like that. And I thought that was a really interesting use of the the novel format to just kind of, you know, oh, this is a little confusing. I'm just going to clear that all up for you. Here's V'ger mm-hmm. to speak a little bit about uh, what he's all about. And, and uh, V'ger, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, it's like, okay, the one thing I'm going to address that's not like a 10 year simmering fan theory or fan debate or something is, uh, yeah, point of view of the, which gets back to, you know, Gene, the whole thing about, you know, hordas versus salt vampires. I mean, it's like the, it's not like us. What is anything we don't know we call a thing? You know, um, mm. that whole that whole Star Trek respect for even lower life forms or whatever, much less intelligent life hidden is something is not intelligent. And to do it from that, that's like the ultimate, right? Vigers. I'd forgotten about that chapter. Now I'm like madly trying to find it. Uh, but yeah, it's like he yes, the novel was the perfect place to speak up for that. And, uh, you know, we'd never gotten to know so much for the, mo- you know, the motionless picture and the motion sickness and all of that, that, the, you know. But um, take that, Nomad. You never got into the Nomad point of view because it was supposed to be a corrupted hybrid and and um, was not on the cusp of sentience, whereas that was the whole point of V'ger was that it was one step away from being launched out of the holodeck. Oh, wait, wait, wait. That's that's later. 
<laughs> well, one striking <laughs> element in this book is in that chapter, it said the resistance was futile. Mm-hmm. Of course. There's that Just sentence. Just teed that right now, up how, for you, didn't we? <laughs> it, how odd is that? Like, do you think Gene Ronberry remembered putting that line in this? And took it to the writers later? I don't... I don't... I think it's just coincidence. Uh, no, yeah, I think it's coincidence. I think just so like uh, What a crazy coincidence, because there are theories, and there was even you know novels that suggest that V'ger came from the Borg homework. Right. Well, that was that was uh, Gene talking around the office, and it really got memorialized, memorialized by Mike and Denise sticking it in a, in a footnote on, um, on the V'ger entry in the first encyclopedia. Right. It's like one of those floaty things when things are kind yeah. of vague. And that's where it really stuck in, I think, fandom's consciousness was, oh. Now, somewhere, I, we were, we're going to do a Trek Files on this, my weekly podcast from Roddenberry Podcast Network, uh, when we, we found a piece of paper that somebody has done a backstory for V'ger. But there's no dating, there's no name on it, mm-hmm. there's no... And, and now I'm wondering if maybe it was done, whether it was done for the... The pilot or for the movie script or even for, you know, writing the novelization. But we were even like trying to look at the style of the typing on the page and like match it up with things from that era, if that's even possible or like, or who did it. Wow. But anyway, or if it's like, if it's a Jesko von Puttkammer, you know, science NASA consultant thing, or if yeah. somebody in the office did it. But anyway, but that's the kind of thing that makes me wonder if maybe it was he did it for the head. Somebody put that together so he could use it not for the script, but for the novel, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. So stay tuned for that one, kids. Coming soon. <laughs> I listen to that show all the time. It's coming down the line. Now, we've we've talked a little bit about this already as well with uh, Decker and kind of his motivations uh, being mm-hmm. a little more fleshed out in the novel. We mentioned that he was kind of sympathetic to the new human movement that type of thing. Um, in the novel, I love that it gives a little bit more weight to Decker's final moments and why he makes the decision that he does. Uh, not only does mm-hmm. he have that new human kind of influence going on there, but uh, at what point in the novel, they're, they're pretty explicit about what happens between him <laughs> and the Ilea probe. And based on what we know about what, coupling with a Delton does to a human brain, he's kind of messed up for the last, you know, third of this novel. And, uh, you know, there's really nowhere for him to go, but to join with Ilea and V'ger at the end, because like they, yeah. they kind of make mention, he's getting a little bit more disheveled. <laughs> as the rest of the novel goes on. Like he's, he's in pretty rough shape. They didn't really uh, get into that in the movie. Yeah. As no. much as you wanted the enterprise, I want this. I think it's like a little more than he wanted the enterprise. I want this. Yeah. But yeah the and- whole, the whole end scene there around the V'ger, the NASA, the Voyager six probe, when they reveal it, it literally is the last few pages of the novel. There's not like a lot. Mm-hmm. There's it about, wraps up very quickly. There's about um, three or four lines past what you got past uh, out there that away, yeah. and um, and it's really it comes at the crash of the at the apex of the novel. But there is more. Of the, there are you know as you like I said with the McCoy Chapel, there are some little scenes that elongate out just to flesh out the novel and take advantage of the format. But and it's not all just. I mean, there's some subtext and inner monologue things explained from what you see on screen, but there's. There are some extra scenes, but there's not a ton of 
there's not a ton there of aren't, them. And then, and, and as you know, there's different cuts of the motion picture right. and some scenes that weren't in the original theatrical release that were later added in the, even the TV release or the director's uh, edition. And, and Gene Roddenberry is subtle, but also not subtle because I think there's even a oh, line there's where... There's an infamous... Yeah. <laughs> where Sulu... Well, there, there's there's another very unsubtle line about, about Kirk. About Kirk. A yeah. physiological reaction that he has. But I remember during that Sulu scene, too, he said something like uh, Sulu was trying to hit the right button and wanted to stand up to reach it better, but realized that, like, he shouldn't do that. He shouldn't yeah. be standing up right now. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I think 10-year-old me didn't get that, but reading it now, Zoom. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's pretty I, apparent. I, I, don't, yes. I don't get it, Dan. Would you please explain that to me? Uh, well, I'll tell you when you're a little older there, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah they uh did they put the there was originally a scripted scene because david gerald had it or somebody susan sackett had it in her column in starlog the scene where kirk actually goes and talks to um uh, nagura was like oh. in the maybe it was just an audition scene i've gone i want to go back and look through old, older scripts mm, i do remember but, that in um, the novel i think yeah, he goes up to the office. Going into the office. And then oh, actually, no, it's, it's here. It's on page oh, it 43. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I found it <laughs> This too. must be rather yeah. difficult for you, said Nagura. Captain Decker has been something of your protege, hasn't he? Yes, sir, oh, but I don't see right. how that makes it difficult. Anyway, but one thing is in the book that you don't get is um, he specifies, they don't say how many are on the rec deck scene. He he goes he goes out of his the narrative voice if it's Kirk I guess says you know like we never did this before had the whole crew. it's funny it's like there are these TV you know in canon out of canon uh, in universe narrative book form whatever mm -hmm. uh, throwbacks back and forth and one of them he's saying well, we've never had everyone on the there was no need we would just get to but this is this was a special case and now we've got the space to do it and with this new three decks high rec deck. But they do, um, aside from that little nod, he does say after it's over that 31 of the crew, he gave them the option to stay or not, mm -hmm. which is just blasted through in the film. Yeah. But in the novel, he says 31 decided to leave. Yes. Of the 400 yeah. and something. So they don't say if the crew is bigger than 430 or not. They just yeah. leave that, you know. But they were able to replace them with another 31 thrill seekers <laughs> based, based uh, on yeah. how you put it. It's like, oh, there's always people on Earth that really want to risk their lives. So we're cool. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so weird because we read so much stuff and, and you know, we start to get things jumbled up. And because I'm even thinking, I feel like this book described another part of the ship that we didn't see in the movie, but now I can't place that in my mind. But maybe I'm confusing that with something else I've read. The one I remember was um, Spock going into like a meditation pod and he was like, oh, there's some other pods that other people are using for other things. And darn my Vulcan hearing, I can hear them doing those things. And then I really wish I couldn't <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's like this is upsetting my emotional in those meditation control. Pods. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's one the other thing that's it's it's like we've been talking about some of the highlights. Some of them are like googie little trivia, and some of them are major points. But there's little places where it's almost like the necessities of getting the damn script done, and like and all the horrendous rewrite, and you know figuring out an ending on the run, and things that had to be like the memory wall being cut out and replaced with another sequence that an effects house did, you know, to get the narrative across. Yeah. And 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 you get to the, the end of that. Memory wall's not in here. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, memory wall was out in time. Yeah. But um, uh, 
but you, there's a little, there's a couple. Every once in a while, I'll be I'll be scanning through and find a little moment where it's the kind of thing that when you watch the movie the first time, you, it's not a big deal, but after four or five times, you may go, "Wait a minute, what?" what? And there's one little moment here, and there's probably many more, where um, it, the moment where he take where Kirk takes command back from Decker, which is the big shock, and then he says, "And we also lost Sonak." You know, we lost we we lost the transporter uh, casualties, the two casualties. I'm going to need a science officer. Uh, he says I'd prefer a Vulcan, and Decker immediately says, "Well, there's none rated on this design, sir. There's no Vulcans rated on this design." And then they have Kirk thinking, "How did he know that already? Like, does he just know that in his head on the run? Mm-hmm. How did he know I was going <laughs> right. to ask for a Vulcan?" And he would say, "There's," a-. but then Decker says, "Actually, there's nobody rated on this design except." Like me, who could act as a science officer, and then Kirk says, "Okay, da da da." But there was a little. It's like Gene takes the opportunity to like little little things that don't make a big deal, but just the logic of the moment. Something must have slapped yeah. him and gone, "Wait, wait, oh, <laughs> yeah." And you can because when I watched it, can, that scene after reading this book, I thought about mm-hmm. that very moment. What you're describing, there. yeah, and it's funny. Like there would be a certain percentage of the audience that would, but I remember watching that movie you know, a dozen times and it never occurred. None available. In fact, there's nobody right. You know, it never, <laughs> but then reading that, like Bruce, yeah. I was just like, Oh yeah. How does he? Know that? <laughs> yeah. So, and then we've got a reference in here to the, uh, 2001. Oh yeah. Right. The wacky little homage moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Another one of those that, you know, when I was young, totally sailed over my head but reading it this time uh oh that i think that might be 2001 and then sure enough i think it was dayton ward was talking about it on his uh facebook Mm -hmm. with a bunch of people and i was like oh that was 2001 okay cool yeah and dayton's still in the green room right now i think he's passed out so (laughs) (laughs) oh is he wait we haven't woken him up yet (laughs) yeah so here's one thing just researching today just kind of refreshing my mind i thought was funny so so, Epsilon 9 at the beginning, right? Commander Branch and all of that. Um, it's Epsilon 9. It's a station, right? Yeah. And I noticed that Memory Alpha is calling it Memory, I mean, uh, calling it Epsilon IX, Roman numeral, which hmm. usually Roman numeral refers to a planet, meaning that uh-huh. now there's a star named Epsilon. This is the ninth planet around Epsilon. But everybody back in the day, it was a station, and stations got numbers, got uh, Roman, yeah. uh, got Arabic numerals, not yeah. Roman numerals. And that's what he didn't use a numeral, but he wrote out nine in the novel, N I N E. And everything, I was just going back and looking at people's interviews and visual effects guys' interviews, and everybody, the way the magazines were formatted from back in the day was Epsilon, you know, uh, Arabic numeral nine, not Roman numeral nine, hmm. because of it's, it's not a planet, it's a station. And I was like, I, just tonight, I was like, well, that's weird. And I'm going back and going back, and apparently, I guess, you know, <laughs> The, uh, <clears throat> what did I call this? The specificity of the Memory Alpha guys. Apparently, there was a, a joke graphic in Next Generation from Aquiel that had some reference to, you know, they were a relay station in Next Generation 100 years later, but, and said something about, uh, had some just throwaway Okudagram graphic that said something about calm traffic from Epsilon 9, and of course, whoever's, you know, getting it cranked out, Mike or whoever at the time. Um, you know, sixth season next gen puts Epsilon IX, not just, you know, just cranking it out. So from that being on screen, even though it's a tiny little <laughs> good gram, they've like made it 
Epsilon 9, even though it makes like no sense. And, and huh. people all back in the day all had it as a, you know, not a Roman numeral because that implies a, a planet number. So anyway, we gotta get that changed on memory. Gotta gotta start it. If forget your forget all your discovery hassles, we've got to fix this motion picture. Thing. Anyway, <laughs> I just saw that and I was like, yeah, you get you go down the rabbit hole of the arcana. Yeah. Uh, now epsilon nine, they have different insignias on their uniforms. Yes, mm-hmm. epsilon nine had. Well, well, they hadn't gotten the. It's only been two years, and they're kind of out there on the frontier, so they hadn't got the. They didn't get the memo. They didn't get the replicate. They didn't get the Bob Justman memo that uh, <laughs> said it was okay. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Sir, yes. Commander, we've uncovered this 20th century memo from a television producer that says we can keep our badges. All right, then. We also found that document attached to something called an email. <laughs> not, not in 1968, but uh, yeah, maybe in 2018. It's uh, been delivered by something called a coolie. And, uh, a, no, I, whoa, that's not, a, uh, that's the, not an Asian reference at all. I'm started. doing a, yes. <laughs> I'm just I'm just having fun with my friend John Cooley. Uh yeah, but it's it's um, this this whole thing about um, I don't know where we are. Oh, uh in the novel there is an assistant engineer named Corton who was named for the fan Janet Corton who is the same Janet Corton that Q was named for in the pilot of Next Generation. Huh. Oh wow. Which I wow. saw that and then I went hmm and then I went back and and traced it back to it actually being uh confirmed. So yeah, they're they're pulling like goofy little fun things. And I know we mentioned it in passing, but I still want to go back to some of the sociology that Gene's doing. And it gets, it's not as overtly sexual as having the Deltons talk about immature sexual species and their pheromones attacking everybody. But the whole thing of, we mentioned Lori Siani, who's apparently supposed to be Siana, and I always thought it was Siani, which doesn't get mentioned in the movie. His, his admiral boss, who's, who basically they set up that Nagura got him hooked up with into a marriage contract to keep him uh, to keep Kirk distracted enough to sit down and be an admiral and get over wanting to command, you know, have a center seat and be out on the frontier because uh, he was too good a, a PR prize to let go, you know. Right. And mm-hmm. but the whole fact that, that that Gene was postulating that, you know, evolved humans 200 years from now, we wouldn't worry about being, you know, this is Gene, <laughs> the Gene with Eileen coming in the door, Majel in the office and Michelle out back at the office. This is the same gene saying, well, you know, we're not going to be monogamous all our life. And one option is just to be married to somebody for a couple of years. And it's a contract. And you either renew it for a couple more years or you don't and you go off and no one worries about it. It's just a contract. A contract is a contract. And we're all big people here. And we can either stay together and bond and keep renewing our contract and... Or we go away at two years and it's not like a loss. It's just the end of the run and we all knew this might happen. You know, and it gets away from all the ugly things of, you know, emotions and, and merit. Anyway, that was kind of an interesting thing that no one ever talks about anymore. And I wanted to make no, sure. No, but we- you know, that, those, that concept I remember being used in at least one, maybe two of the lost, uh, years novels that took place during, uh, between the five year mission and between the this picture. and, oh, okay. I, are right. the lost years between that or they're not between motion? Aren't there some novels between motion picture and Rathacon? Uh, yeah, There's but the lost some, year yeah. novels are oh, between okay. or where that was the picked. original series and yeah. Yeah. Next, and, and I'm, I'm actually currently reading those right now very slowly over the last seven years. I've read two of them, <laughs> but yeah, this, Lori Sienna plays a big role in those novels and, uh, the marriage contracts thing actually, there's a bit where, um, you know, their relationship is talked about, but also, uh, Lieutenant, um, 
Lieutenant Riley has uh, a wife mm. contract that she ends up not renewing and he's heartbroken about. So they, they've done some interesting things with it in the novels there as well. So much for taking the emotion out of it then. Yeah, no, it's very emotional in his case. <laughs> it would be so weird if like my contract with my wife was coming up at the end of the year. I'd be like freaking out right now. Like, <laughs> is she going to renew? Ugh, that's weird. No ice cream for her tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Reference uh, acknowledged. <laughs> yeah. And the one last one last thing I'll say about this is like this is like the Picayune trivia stuff. I love how he gave the the Vulcan High Master of the three priests, the the three Vulcan masters. He gave her a name, so we don't have to just say the head Vulcan master and the two sidebar Vulcan masters. We at least have a name to mm-hmm. to sigh, and that they're at the plane of Gaul, which just laid there and then got picked up. You know, Enterprise picked it up. I think Gar and Judy used it in the in the Vulcan trilogy. Um, and they mm-hmm. got into it, Gaul being tied into the whole, the atomic war on Vulcan, you know, the, and the, before the Romulans. The, the, yeah. And then the whole, I think the, also the yeah, Gambit two-parter, the, the psionic weapon was the stone oh, of Gaul. that's what it was. Excuse me. Thank you, yeah. Dan. No, I was, yes, they did redo it, but it was, yes, it was the stone of Gaul first. Back on that, which means it was probably, who did that, Renee, I think? I'm trying to remember who wrote that one, but yeah, Gambit. Otherwise known as the Star Trek Picard prequel series. Apparently. <laughs> Gambit is a renegade uh, merchant. Um, yeah. Well, that being said, I think it's time we go into our final thoughts on this one. So, Larry, final thoughts about the novelization of the motion picture. Well, final thoughts is uh, it's it's fun and wonderful seeing so many people give a fresh look or maybe even a first serious look to the motion picture. That's what anniversaries are good for. And uh, people are doing sidebars. There's, uh, they're doing a new book on the art and effects, which is cool. The whole mystique mm. of the latter-day politics, or not politics, but the whole drama of trying to, rest- you know, the original director's cut edition from, my God, 10 years ago that David and Mike and Darren did with Robert Wise before he passed to try to restore all those scenes that were cut in the mad dash to get the damn thing done that they had to abandon. But they didn't up-res it enough, and now there's a movement afoot to get it 4K'd and, you know, all of that. And any of that that gets out the motion picture and maybe gets it to, and purists will say, well, I want all the forms. I want what I saw in the, <laughs> it's not quite on the Star <laughs> Wars level, but it's like what I saw at the theater in 79 and then what I get now, I, that's cool. I just want it to be different, like the, the original series, remasters, Blu-rays, and original, you know, as long as we have all the iterations. But the novel has got so much... Yes, all the novelizations of movies flesh out a two-hour script, and there's all kinds of things in there. And sometimes it's the novelist, and if it's somebody who did them for years, you know, or whatever, uh, gets into the into the good graces of licensing and gets to do it over pocket and gets to do it over and over, like Diane Duane for several times. They invent scenes because they think the logic needs it, and sometimes they're doing scenes that were scenes that were cut from a script at sometimes the last minute, you know. And the only best record that until we get into the years of having scripts on file online is some of those scenes were, you know, saved because of they were late cuts that a novelist didn't know that and they got approved and printed with them in there. So either way, but the motion picture is, again, is not like any other Star Trek movie. And this novelization is not like any other novelization. You know, even the Jerry Taylor novelizations, um, but from Next Gen and Onward and Voyager. But yeah, if you're thinking at all about it, 
think of the fandom, think of the 10 years, think of the dam breaking that supported the motion picture. And oh my gosh, just for a lesson in wacky 1979 Gene Roddenberry sociology, read the novelization. <laughs> get, get all up on your mind control revolts, bloody as they are, and your marriage contracts, and your Tehilaness, and, and all of that. And the roots of Riker and Deanna are right there with which we all knew anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yes. Dan, what do you think? Yeah. Um, I have to echo a lot of what Larry said, of course. Um, I, I've been probably unnecessarily harsh on novelizations in general in the past. Um, you know, some of them are done well, some of them not so well. This one I remember reading early on because, you know, I was going to read all of the numbered Star Trek novels way back in the day. And this, you know, they made number one. So I had to read it. And I was really impressed with it back in the day. Not only does it flesh out stuff that we maybe needed a little bit more explanation in the film, but it's also, like Larry said, a peek inside the mind of Gene Roddenberry, the creator of all of this. And uh, that peak is at times quirky and at times a little scary, but you know, it's, it's always just really neat to kind of get a, a look inside the mind that created it all. So I definitely recommend this novelization. I enjoyed it as much this time as I did the, at least two previous times that I've read it. It really does have a lot of really fun stuff. And, uh, you know, if you like the motion picture like I did, or even if you don't really like the motion picture, I think this really adds to that experience and might make you turn around a little bit on your opinion if you uh, don't enjoy that film. So highly recommend, definitely read this one. Yeah, I definitely feel that this novel is that insight into Gene Roddenberry, at least at this time. And I think any Star Trek fan that's like really deep into Star Trek lore and how the history of creating the series and the movies and such, I think this is definitely worth the read. And if you think that the motion picture goes a little too slow, well, the book <laughs> goes through the cloud a little faster. So you, know, <laughs> you can enjoy it that way. So I'm going to go ahead and give it a rating. I'm going to say this is five out of five marriage contract renewals. Definitely. Do you guys want to give a rating like similar? Or? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I would have to agree with that rating. I would probably give it five out of five repaired warp drive circuits. Thanks to the timely arrival of Mr. Spock. <laughs> Great. Oh, I don't know what you guys are thinking, but I would give it five out of five of the cleanest mind control revolts you've ever seen. <laughs> uh, scale. <laughs> Subceiver per scan or not. Yeah. <laughs> well, Larry, I can't read your mind, but I think I know what you're going to say next. And that would be, where can people find you online and what other stuff are you got going on? Oh, well, I, you know, I'd signed these protocols against the sharing of my personal promotional data online, but uh, I don't want to start a, a bloody revolt <laughs> over it. So I'll just tell you, <laughs> uh, everything is, everything is basically at LarryNimichek.com. Uh, Larry Nimichek on Twitter, at Larry Nimichek, and Larry Nimichek's Trekland on Facebook. Uh, the same thing as Instagram. And on Facebook, every Tuesday, I have uh, Trekland Tuesdays live with a topic and Q&A with whoever's listening uh, at 1 p.m. Pacific on my Facebook page, on my Trekland main page. 
Um, and then every Tuesday, as I think we sneaked in, um, the Trek Files comes out. We pull something out of Gene's files, a memo or a letter or to him, from him, fans, celebrities, other people in the production of the time. And very, a lot of non-Star Trek things because it all reflects back on Gene and it all reflects even in the old days. A lot of things totally reflect on what's happening in today's world or in today's Trek. So, uh, And that's been awesome. And I try to have a guest. I either have uh, my co-guest is John Champion, but uh, most of the time I try to have – who's the director producer? But most of the time I try to have the likes of Dorothy Fontana and Doug Grexler and Rick Sternbach and uh, Renee Echevarria and Andy Probert and um, – Fred Bronson <laughs> and people who had a hand somewhere along the way. In prof- uh, yeah. And B. Joe and John Trimble, people who had a hand in some of the subjects that we get into with the files. So it's been really um, – that's been a lot of fun too. So those are both on Tuesday. Um, you wake up Tuesday morning and the track files is, is there on the Facebook page or whatever your podcasting device is. And, uh, and it's on our master feed here on Track FM. Yes, it is. Too. Thank you for the poke. Yes, it is on the master feed there. Um and otherwise, Portal 47 is our monthly mini-con all year long with a lot of live events. If you want to jump in the portal, if you enjoy deep diving, and I think anybody listening to any podcast, by the time you've got to this point in your trectum, you're wanting to take a, take a deeper dive. And I invite everybody to come over uh, to portal47.net and our big annual open house, anniversary open house, my fourth anniversary, is coming up October 22nd, Tuesday night at 7 Pacific. I've um, we're about to announce the guest, but you can come on over to LarryNimichek.com slash open house. And uh, it's all free. It's a virtual ticket. And um, you can pre-submit questions, but I'll have an awesome guest. The prior guests have been Mike Westmore, Renee Echevarria, David Livingston, and Robert Butler, the director of The Cage. That uh, was my first anniversary guest. Wow. So uh, it's and it, we, it's the one time of year we open the doors and show everybody how the portal, how the live events at the portal. There's a lot more than that, but how the telebriefings work. So I invite everybody to come over right now and sign up. It's free, and I just need a head count. It's good to have a head count. So that's all happening. And then the next uh, Trekland Treks happens all year long. If you're in LA and you want to take a uh, get out of virtual world and come take a real life away mission um, to some of the location film, you pick the location sites you want to go to. And on November 9th and or 10th, I'm offering – I do this four times a year. It's like a Trekland Treks in a plan and a package. It's a little cheaper. It's called LA Away Days, and you can go to larrynimichek.com slash awaydays and find all out about that the 9th and or 10th. Otherwise, if you're just coming to LA sometime on vacation or business, check out treklandtreks.com. Get in touch with me, and we'll work you out for four sites a day and lunch. And uh, bring your uniform. Or bring your props or bring your whatever you want to do a picture with, if that's your thing. And we will have an awesome time. But yeah, so that's that's everything Trekland going, guys. Thank you for thank you for asking me. And this has been fun tonight to dive back. Speaking of deep diving, deep diving back into the novel. Yes. Now I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. Yeah. So me too, definitely. Very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> it's always fun to pick your brain about Star Trek and, and the minutiae, so uh, this was a ton of fun. Picked brains stay fresh, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you know, having Larry Nemechek, Dr. Trek, on the show can always guarantee that there's going to be a lot to talk about. And, you know, the the trivia, the minutia that that man carries around in his head, 
I just love picking his brain, like I said, about Star Trek and all this stuff. So that was so much fun. I can just like listen to him like all day. I just throw something out and just let him go. You know, it's 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 crazy. But the funny thing is that there's times I'm around him in person and I don't really ask him anything or talk Star Trek much. We're usually talking about food or something. (laughs) But it's like, but when he's like on podcasts and stuff, it's like I could just hear him all day because he's got so many facts and so many all this information in his head. It's just it's just incredible. But it's it's been fun talking about Larry's brain today. But this isn't the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. Okay, that's excellent. And it'll be interesting to see how we interpreted the topic because I know I may have interpreted it uh, maybe a little differently than others did. We'll see. Is this another time travel thing? No, I was, I was going to say no time travel for me as long as Jellicoe doesn't come into this. Sure. Okay. So we'll make that deal then. Awesome. (laughs) I'm in. All right. Literary treks. And, you know, the the stakes are are really big. You know, we'll we'll get there, but, you know, this Borg ship threatens Earth and all this kind of stuff. And it just feels like it's it's a lot of really comic booky, over-the-top stuff doesn't quite fit right with the novel that came before it and the novel that came after it, if that makes sense. (laughs) Primitive Culture, a look at history and culture through Star Trek. And Next Gen Arriving was was this sort of, wow, wow, this looks incredible. I know when we look at sort of first season Next Gen now, what we're going is, wow, this is really slow and stagey. But in fact, it was was incredible. It was absolutely um, game-changing. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Only because I was watching little bits of Emissary recently is that he would see himself wearing that awful purple swimsuit and think, oh, God, I can't wear that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Every time I see it, I'm like, whoa, I'm really glad I'm not wearing 24th century clothing. (laughs) If you wanted me to murder an entire society, fine. (laughs) But I'm not wearing that bathing suit. Too revealing. That's where I draw the line. (laughs) That's funny. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. You know, Larry's Brain was my favorite episode of the original Star Trek series. Yeah, but it's it really isn't all that good. <laughs> well, <laughs> if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button for this podcast in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes of Literary Treks as soon as they're published. And please, if you have the time, leave us a star rating and written review. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. If you're not an Apple user, though, we've got you covered as well. You can find all of the Trek FM shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link as well. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can do that by becoming a patron on the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place, of course, is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. 
If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And find us on our Goodreads group. We have bookshelves showing what we previously read, what we're going to read, and what we're currently reading, and all kinds of discussions are happening there. So just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. And we'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shamatala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM Network and being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. So, Dan, when you have a sensever in your head and I'm calling you to say, hey, it's time to record literary tracks, what are you doing the rest of the time? <laughs> you know, I don't know about this thing. It's, it's, it's a little weird. It doesn't just give me a direct message. It just gives me this impression. It's, it's kind of weird. But I prefer direct methods of communication, like on Twitter, where I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. I've also got a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Productions. And of course, facebook.com slash Productions and treklet.com where I review Star Trek novels and the Babel Conference, of course. Now, Bruce, when you're not remaining seated at your navigation console because a certain Delton navigator has walked in on you, where can we find you? I'm not telling. <laughs> <laughs> wow. If you really want to know, you can tweet me at Admiral underscore Rex, and maybe I'll tell you. Or you can listen to Live from the Edge with me and Brandy Jackala. And we have one coming up on Short Treks, Ask Not. That's November 14th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. And you can find me doing the Star Wars report, talking about Star Wars. And, of course, you can find me in the Babel Conference. So thank you, everyone, for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.